Hey, Gospel Hope. Uh, we're going to continue our True Tre Treasure series here this morning by diving into Luke chapter 19. And the title of the message is simply this, In the Meantime. You know, none of us really enjoy or savor the idea of waiting or standing in a long line. But as you look across our society, there are a few things that people have deemed worth the wait. For instance, there's a famous restaurant in Philadelphia called Tallulah's Table. And if you want to get in and have a seat at this famous table, uh, then you actually have to make your reservations exactly one year in advance before you plan on coming. Uh, well, maybe gourmet food is, is not up your alley, and you just prefer some good old down-home Texas barbecue. I know we have some Texans in our congregation, and you're going to be like cheering at this particular moment. Uh, don't let it go to your heads too much, as Texans usually do. Uh, but you can head on over to Franklin's Barbecue over in Austin, Texas. I mean, this place is world-renowned for its barbecue. But if you really want to make sure that you get some before you run out, you need to show up at 5 a.m. That's six hours before the joint even opens because regularly people that start in line after that don't even get any food. Uh, maybe food is not your thing that is worth the wait for you. Maybe you're more of a thrill seeker. You know, a few years ago, I, I had the opportunity to ride Disney's Flight of the Avatar. I mean, it is an awesome ride. I mean, it, it is up to the billing advertisement. It is awesome. But the longest recorded wait time for Disney's Avatar is simply this. It was a brief 319-minute wait. That's five and a half hours, just under that. But you know what the most sought-after ticket in, in possibly the whole United States is this. It is season tickets to the Green Bay Packers who play at Lambeau Field. Having lived in Wisconsin for a little while, I know that these Packers fans can be particularly rabid. But if you want to get seats to every game there at their beloved Lambeau, prepare for about a 30-year wait on the waiting list. That's the average time you have to wait in order to get a season ticket there. I mention all this because if you're a follower of Christ, you are called to a life of waiting, but not for good food or some sort of thrill ride or some experience at a sporting event. We are called to wait on something even greater, namely the return of Jesus Christ himself. And that is exactly what this parable in Luke chapter 19 is all about. Look at verse number 11. As they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. So as Jesus is ministering, his popularity is growing and crowds are flocking to him and they're wanting to get in on the act. They thought so much though that now Jesus should be the rightful king. His Jewish followers, because he was near Jerusalem, was like, hey, this is the capital city. Let's get in there and you can take the reins of power right now, Jesus. This is your moment. But Jesus then tells this powerful story to make something abundantly clear. It wasn't his time yet. It was time to wait. Essentially, this parable of the minas is Jesus saying to the crowds, slow your roll. It's not time for me to be king. It's actually time for you to wait. You see, after Jesus told this parable, he went to Jerusalem. 
he died on a cross, he rose again from the dead and then ascended into heaven. And when he did this, he told his disciples that he would return again. In other words, um, Luke chapter 19 sets the stage. Jesus is saying, now it's time to wait, but one day I will come back and your wait will be over. We read that over in the first chapter of Acts chapter one, verse 11. The angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So think about this for a minute. Jesus's disciples lived in the time of waiting between his first coming as a baby and his second coming as the king. And here's the thing. You and I still live in that waiting period. We are in this time in between. We are in the meantime, in one sense. The time between the Christmas story where Jesus came in a manger and the time where Jesus will come and rule and reign over all the world. In one sense, it is completely accurate to say our whole duty is simply to wait on the Lord. That's the season that we live in right now. That is our lifetime. We live in the meantime. We live in a time where we're supposed to wait for our Savior. But this raises the question, how do we wait on the Lord? What does it look like to live a life of waiting on God? Uh, maybe a story will help this a little bit. Uh, with several kids now in the double-digit figures, Trisha and I have joyfully entered the stage in the mechanic household where we can leave our children at home to take care of themselves. That is simply, we can steal away for a couple of hours at dinner and the older kids are more than capable of looking after their younger siblings. But when we typically leave, we say something like, hey, we'll be back in a little while. We'll be back in a few. We won't be gone long. And in that statement is kind of this idea. Hey, when we leave, we expect you to wait for our return in a particular way. We don't want to come back to the house to see everything destroyed or the younger siblings not looked after or not taken care of. No, when we leave, we're basically saying there is a particular way in supposed that you are supposed to wait. You are supposed to wait with us for us with a particular spirit and a particular disposition. And I think in an infinitely greater way. That is what this passage of scripture is reminding us here today. God has expectations for his people as we wait for his return. We're not just supposed to wait willy-nilly. We're supposed to wait for him in a particular time, in a particular way, which leads me to my simple point this morning, which is this. We must not waste our waiting. You live in a waiting time. I live in a waiting time. All of us live in a time of waiting. And I think what Luke 19 is telling us this morning is simply this. Don't waste your wait. The parable of the meanest tells us how to do just that by reminding us of three important principles that inform how we wait on the Lord. And I'd like to unpack those with us briefly in the next few moments together. So maybe I have the most silly heading, the most obvious heading of all time. It is simply this, how to wait. I want to give you three methods or three strategies that tell us how to wait on the Lord. And they all begin with one word, and it's this, remember. 
Number one, remember where you are. Jesus sets up this parable in a very interesting way. Look at verse number 12. Noblemen traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called 10 of his servants, gave them 10 minas, and told them, engage in business until I come back. Now notice verse 14. This is really critical. But his subjects hated him and sent delegations after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. So Jesus sends his servants out with 10 minas. That's a unit of money. And he calls them to do business, but he calls them to do business in a place that was openly hostile towards his rule. Or if I could put it this way, followers of Jesus operate behind enemy lines. I think that's a really important principle. For those, we should always seek the good of our world. We must not forget that our allegiance to King Jesus will often put us out of step with the dominant values of our society. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have been entrusted with some minas, which all of us have, God has given you time and talent and treasures and as your masters, the Lord expects you to take what he has given you and leverage it for his kingdom, his purposes, his value, for his rule. We are supposed to be people that recognize who Jesus is as king, even when our world does not. The implication of this, if you are following Christ, then you will spend your time on things that others see as pointless. If you are following Christ, then you will invest your money in ways that people will not always understand. If you are following Christ, you will leverage your talents for purposes that others think are foolish. Church, let us not forget, as the Apostle Paul says over in the book of Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for the Savior from there. Or to put it another way, Christianity is countercultural. By its very nature, following Jesus is going to put you out of step with the world at times. Though we should seek to consistently serve and sacrificially bless those in our world, we must not live seeking the approval of the world, but rather seeking the approval of the one who will rule the world. Let's not forget who we are. That is where we are. That is how we leverage our time, talents, and treasures in a way that makes our waiting valuable. One way you can waste your waiting is act as if this world is really your home when it's not. Oh, brothers and sisters, we should be kind. We should be gracious. We should be gentle. We should be known for our good deeds. But let us not be mistaken. This world is not our home. Our allegiance is to someone else. We are from another country and we wait for our Savior to return from there. Remember where you are. The second way not to waste your waiting is simply this. Remember what you are doing. The next section of the parable, I'll be honest with you, it seems to be equal parts encouraging and equal parts warning. Look at verse number 15. At his return, this is of the nobleman, 
having received authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. Uh, the story of the second servant is very similar. He comes forward and said, Master, I've, I've produced more. And Jesus gives him authority over five towns. And then he gets to the third servant. Master, here is your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. And he told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put the money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And let me make a couple of encouraging and sobering observations here. First of all, Unlike the more well-known parable of the talents, if you've read the Bible, Matthew tells a very similar story over there. But in, in this one, uh, in the parable of the talents, each of the servants received different amounts. One receives five, one receives two, and one receives one. But in the parable of the minas, all of the servants get the same amount. They get one mina. So what's going on and what is the difference that's being highlighted between these two parables? I think the principle is this. Every servant in this story gets one mina because I think the Lord in this particular parable is trying to drive home this point. We all have one life to steward. That's it. We all have one life to steward. And if I could also add another stroke there, it's simply this. And what you do with it matters. You only have one life. And what you do with that one life that God has given to you matters deeply to God. In this story, in this parable, the servant who in 10 minas was rewarded in kind. In other words, he got 10 and he was given a reward that was corresponding to what he did. And then the servant who earned five minas was again rewarded in kind. He took his and with five minas, he, he earned five minas and he was given five towns to oversee. And then the one who hid his mina was punished severely. Friends, I want to say this very kindly, but God cares about what you do with your life. God cares about what you do with your time and your talents and your treasures. If you have trusted in Jesus while we wait for his return, it is our job to lever leverage all that we are, to leverage all that we have for his kingdom and his agenda. I find it difficult to improve upon the old saying, only one life, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. That's it. That should be kind of the mantra over all of our lives. Only one life. That's all we have. And it will be gone soon enough. And the only things that really will last for eternity is what we do for Jesus. Are we leveraging our time, talents, and treasures for our king? Second, I want you to notice another thing. Notice what the master commends in verse number 17. Well done, good servant. Because you have been 
faithful. Say that word with me. Faithful. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. Now, I want you to look at the flip side now. Jesus commends faithfulness and he condemns something else. Verse number 20. Master, here is your mina. I have kept it safe because I was afraid. Say that word with me. Afraid of you. Since you're a harsh man, you collect what you didn't deposit and reap where you don't sow. Uh, so the Lord commends faithfulness and he condemns fear. Or to put it simply, our focus on faithfulness must exceed our fear of failure. Our focus on faithfulness must exceed our fear of failure. You see, the Lord doesn't expect you or I to be perfect. That's not what the text says. He expects us to be faithful. And, and for some of us, we are letting our fear that things won't go perfect prevent us from doing anything. Have you ever been crippled by that? Have you ever been afraid that you won't get it right so you end up doing nothing? Look, investing our time and skills in money and kingdom priorities will not always go smoothly. I mean, let me just tell you, full disclosure, if you really leverage your life and all that you are for Jesus and his mission and his kingdom, things will at times not go according to plan. Relationships are messy. Plans fail. There will even be times where you get taken advantage of. But when we strive towards faithfulness, even when we blow it, even when we mess up, even when we make the inevitable mistakes and dare I say sins that will come, when we strive to be faithful, our Lord is pleased. We must not let our vision of the perfect scenario prevent us from faithfully engaging in the real one. And I don't know who needs to hear that today, but I know that's an encouragement to my heart. Sometimes I put this expectation on myself that I've got to live up to this certain level. Oh, God wants us to strive. What we do really does matter. This parable makes that plain. But God does not expect us to be perfect. He expects us to be faithful, following our Savior and leveraging all that we are and all that we have for his kingdom agenda. And when we do our best, when we are moving ahead with faith and not being encumbered by fear, at the end of the day, God says, well done, good servant. You have been faithful in small things, and now I'm going to bless you in significant things. And that leads me to the third way that we don't waste our waiting, and it's this, remember what will happen. And what will happen? What happens when we don't waste our waiting? It's this, God rewards faithfulness. This is clearly spelled out. Again, back in verse number 17. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. Now, here's why this is tricky. There's this notion out there that if we kind of work because we want to be rewarded, then it somehow becomes ungodly. Now, I completely understand where that comes from because sadly, through the years, many false teachers have twisted the Bible's teaching on this and, and made it seem like, man, if you put $10 in the offering plate, you should expect $100 in your bank account. You know, if you put $1,000 in, in the offering plate, you should expect a new house that God is going to give you. The problem with this line of thinking 
is not that it's looking for a reward from God. The problem with this line of thinking is that it is looking for a reward of the wrong kind at the wrong time. You say, what do you mean by that, Ryan? Well, let me unpack this. The Bible actually repeatedly teaches that God loves to reward his people's faithfulness. For instance, over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number six, we read this. The one who draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he, what's it say? Rewards those who seek him. Or Matthew chapter six, verse number four. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And one more, Revelation chapter 22, verse number 12. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. Uh, so the Bible's teaching really could be summarized on this topic in this way. Our earthly investments for the Lord result in heavenly rewards from the Lord. Our earthly investments for the Lord result in heavenly rewards from the Lord. We shouldn't give our time, talents, and treasures in order to get a nicer car or a bigger house. We should, be get, we should give of our time and talents of treasure because we want God to reward us in eternity. We, we don't just want temporal gifts from God. We want eternal ones, things that will never wear out. You see, kingdom living is far more like investing in bonds than playing the lottery. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let me explain. Kingdom living or investing in God's purposes, it's not an improbable get-rich-quick scheme like the lottery. Like, you know, you just kind of hope and you throw a dollar at it and you hope you'll get rich overnight. No, it's more like a proven, secure, long-term strategy of building wealth. As one author has said time and time again, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And that's the way we as believers should be operating in this world. We should be making investments that are sending ahead rewards into eternity. And frankly, if you have your heart set on a brand new jag or a giant pile of money, you actually have your sights set far too low. You're not looking for a big enough reward. God wants to do more than give you a nice car or a fancy house. God wants to reward you in disproportionate ways. He wants to bless your socks off, as it were. Look at the text again, verse number 16. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned 10 more minas. A, a mina was a unit of money roughly equivalent to three months wages of a, you know, a regular laborer of the day. So it's not a vast sum of money. It's significant, but it's not a vast sum of money. So this servant took these three months of wages and he invested it. And the result was he got back just under four years worth of a laborer's wages. Now that's certainly nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's a, that's a good amount of money. But notice how the Lord responds to this four years salary of a regular laborer. Well, how does he respond? 17, well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, 
have authority over 10 towns. Did you catch that? He's like, hey, I gave you a little bit and you were faithful with that little bit that I gave you. Now I'm going to bless you in abundance. The point that Jesus is making this, Christ's reward always far surpasses your investment. I don't know what economic situation you're living in. I don't know what country in the world you're living in. If you invest three me or one mina and end up getting 10 minas and end up getting 10 towns to rule over, that is a great ROI, return on investment. Look, if we could just take it to how the church folks sometimes say it, it's simply this, you cannot outgive God. You can't. Christ's reward is always far above, far beyond, far surpasses any investment that you and I make. And friends, this is meant to motivate us. As we wait for our Lord's return, no matter how long he seems delayed, or no matter how hard our life can at times seem, we should keep on investing in kingdom priorities. Why? Because as 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 17 says, our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That is, everything that we invest on this side of eternity will, will abound for us, will abound for us in immeasurable quantities in eternity. We cannot outgive the Lord. You must remember, if we're going to faithfully wait on God, we have to remember what is going to happen, and that will fuel and sustain our generosity and our stewardship of all that God has entrusted to us. But doing this, leveraging our, our time and talents and treasures, is by no means an easy task. When everything in the world around us say, live for now, live for the right now, be comfortable, be wealthy, be influential, don't spend yourself for others, spend yourself for you. You've got to look out for number one. When our world screams this all over the place, is this type of countercultural living even possible? Thankfully, the answer is yes. Remember, at the beginning of the parable, I told you that Jesus was nearing Jerusalem. And the crowd wanted to kind of seize him and say, hey, you go be king. You go rule right now. You know, Jesus did make it to Jerusalem right after he told this parable. But he didn't go there to sit on the throne. He actually went there to be lifted up and die on a cross. Jesus told this parable and then headed to Calvary to fulfill the mission that God had sent him to do. And in so doing, in laying down his life for his people, Jesus guaranteed that the next time that he came, the time that he would return, the wait would come to an end. No more waiting. In other words, Jesus came as the king the world did not recognize to become the king that the world needed. When Jesus came the first time, people didn't see him for who he was, but he did it because he loves us to be the king that all of us needed. But this not yet king's rule has already begun. It's not just a future hope, it's a present reality, but Jesus isn't sitting on some physical throne in some physical city. Jesus is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people right now. In a sense, Jesus died 
so that the church, those who follow Jesus, you and I, people have turned from their sins and put their hope in him could be outpost of his rule and reign. People are to look at us, to look at the way we live for the allegiance of Christ and Christ alone and say, man, is that what it looks like to live under the rule of this king? Is that a foretaste of the rule of King Jesus? That looks good. Remember, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples these words, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's not just I will be king one day. I am king. My reign starts right now and it starts with you and I. The implication is this. The lives of God's people are to demonstrate that living under God's king is good. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Jesus, you should leverage all that you have. Leverage your time and talents and treasures for his kingdom, not just because he tells you to. Yes, that's part of it. But you should leverage all that you have because when you live in submission to him, it actually shows Jesus to be beautiful to the watching world. Man, I've tried to be my own king. Many of you have tried to live and reign over your own life. And here's the reality. I'm not a very good king. I need a king. I need a king who will lead me and guide me and direct me. And I need a king who will make my life count for eternity. And there's only one person who can sit on that throne. And that is Jesus Christ. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And he rose victoriously in my place. He is the already not yet king that all of us need. So let's turn our lives towards him. Not simply so that we can be obedient to him, but so that the world will see that he is good and matchless and incomparable. This is a present reality. Jesus did not just die to be your savior one day. He died to be your king today. And because of this, no matter what the world may say, we can joyfully, happily, dare I say enthusiastically, submit our time, talents, and treasure to him. You might say, Ryan, that sounds good. I want to live as Jesus, with Jesus as my king, but I'm not even sure how to go about that. Well, let me pose for you just a couple of practical suggestions as how you can live this out this week. And I just want to offer two things. The first thing, I want to ask yourself a series of three questions. And I actually want you to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10. Here's the question. Am I leveraging my time for Christ's kingdom? One to 10, rate yourself on that. Second question, am I leveraging my talents for Christ's kingdom? Rate yourself from one to 10. Third question, and you know what it is. Am I leveraging my treasure for Christ's kingdom? Rate yourself on a scale of one to 10. Now you've got three numbers there, hopefully. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is one thing that I can do this week to move that scale up one number? So if you're a six, how can you go to a seven? If you're a three, how can you go to a four? If you're a nine, how can you go to a 10? How can you leverage all that you are, your time, your talents, your treasure, your whole life for something that really matters? Look, Jesus died 
to be the king that we all desperately need. So let's live our lives for his kingdom. It is eternal and it will matter forever and ever. Let's not live for this passing world, but why we wait on our Savior to return. And you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, help us to leverage our lives for your glory, for your kingdom. Help us to be a people who are about our Father's business. May our lives demonstrate that you are a good and gracious king. In your name we pray. Amen.